0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast and to another Q&A episode. We've got this one and another Q&A episode afterwards uh, to get through, and then we're going to get launched into a new series, which I'm really excited about. So I have two questions I'm going to answer here, and I think they're really good for us to ponder together. Um, I, I probably won't, as usual, be able to say everything that needs to be said, but hopefully I can say something useful. So, both questions are from Kyle and his first question is this, is it possible in today's age for the broken man, for me I suffer from depression, anxiety and PTSD, to have a place in a marriage that is so often defined by the man's ability to provide stability. Kyle sent me a follow-up message on this to point out that it's a very unsettling time for men and women right now because Roles have become so arbitrary, so blurry, often because of various rights movements and pop culture ideas. And I think Kyle is right on this. There have been seismic shifts in how family structures work and how relationships are negotiated today. It is a profoundly difficult thing to navigate anyway, and I could write several books if I had the time, on how culture has shifted the way that we think about gender. Uh, What's perhaps most alarming in in the midst of a lot of uh, the, I guess, identity politics is is there is a kind of resurrection of the so-called battle of the sexes, uh, which sees the masculine and the feminine as being, in a sense, at war with each other, rather than as being complementary principles of generativity. And that's just a small fraction of the issue. That... There's so much to to be said about all of this, but that's just the context uh, within which we're going to have to start grappling with the question. So yes, this is, as Kyle says, an unsettling time, and these things are really already very difficult to negotiate. And then on top of this, Kyle has some really big difficulties of his own that make the, the already present difficulties even worse. So I do want to say, Kyle, I'm, I'm really sorry about your struggles. I know that some days, or most days, things must be really tough. And I can only say that I sincerely hope that you find the courage and the grace and the support you need to face all of it. I do want to tackle some of the theological issues around your question, Kyle. So it's worth pointing out that there are many theological debates, especially around the various roles of men and women in relationship. Some people will very quickly point to the fact that the Bible appears to support a complementarian ratio between male and female in a relationship. This tends to imply that men head up the household typically and women need to submit to their husbands. And then of course against this, others will argue at length in favour of the so-called egalitarian ratio, which suggests that women and men are equal, uh, with their relationships being far more negotiable uh, and far, obviously far less hierarchical. On this debate, I take a rather annoying stance. I think both, let's call them relationship strategies, both relationship strategies are what you might call biblical. Both are there. There is definitely evidence that the Bible talks about complementarianism and there is a sense in which the Bible talks about egalitarianism and honestly I can see why both are there. Cultural and personality shifts must allow for the flexibility of being able to negotiate your relationships in terms of where you are and who you are rather than just in terms of some highly abstract ideal that is entirely removed from your context and nature. I'm not saying that there are no ideals. I'm I'm going to get to the idea of ideals in a moment, but I am saying that it is ridiculous to demand that people adhere to certain ideas over and against others when there is no obvious contest between them. If anyone has ever actually been in a marriage rather than just examining this this issue from a, an abstract distanced point of view, they will know that it is An incredibly dynamic thing and it is precisely the dynamics of it that make it work. So let's not approach this like modernists who try to impose a very small vision on how things ought to be onto the very massive drama of how things actually are. Keeping this in mind I do also want to say this, brokenness has never disqualified anyone from the possibility of wholeness. If brokenness disqualified anyone from marriage, no one would ever get married. In fact, if there is one fairly universal thread in the Christian scriptures, and I think it is ingenious, it's the idea that our brokenness is precisely the thing that qualifies us for any form of redemption, any form of redemptive action, or for receiving any grace that is given to us. As Jesus claimed, it is the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. But of course, this requires that the sick actually go to the doctor and seek out the healing that they need. I know, however, that often we get a different message. We are told that we need to be healthy, but without the help that we actually also need. People often quote Jesus as saying, Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And if we listen to that, very soon we're likely to feel even more broken and even more incapable of receiving the healing that we need. Well, I've got some good news to say to this particular translation of of being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's a good translation of the Greek. But there are some scholars of Aramaic who suggest that it is most likely that Jesus was using Aramaic to say this rather than Hebrew or Greek. And they point out that the words Jesus spoke would have been better rendered as be all embracing as your heavenly father is all embracing. Perfection is not about getting things right all the time, but about moving towards wholeness. And that's a very different idea from the kind of idea of perfection that we often have as a result of our very modern influences. If God is all-embracing, then does God embrace your imperfections as a part of your journey towards wholeness? Yes, absolutely. And should you embrace them as part of your journey towards wholeness too? Of course. Still, I think that we need to tackle this gap between the real and the ideal in Kyle's question. There's this idea of being broken on the one hand and The supposed masculine or manly ideal of being able to provide stability on the other. It's worth keeping in mind that all of us, no matter who we are, no matter what our lives look like, are caught between the expectations we have about life, we could have these socially or self-imposed, and our actual lives. We're caught between what we want to happen and what will actually happen. And there's often a a big conflict between where we hope to be and where we actually are, a conflict that is very complex. It's complex enough to understand, but which involves a mix of perceptions, judgments, and assumptions. This is actually one of the gifts and the curses of being human because we need ideals. We need to be able to imagine where we will be tomorrow and we need to be able to look towards the future ideals actually structure the present just like the ideal of a possible marriage in the future gives structure to a relationship in the present so here very simply i'm not slamming idealism i am an idealist and i'm quite happy to be an idealist but i have to recognize and i think we all need to that there is a dark side to all of this because every ideal is also a judge and so the question has to be is the judge fair? Or maybe, is the judge reasonable? Is the ideal or judge meeting you where you are? Often we pick ideals or judges that want us to be on page 345 when we feel like we're still on page 3. And the only fair judge is the one that asks us to get to page 4 when we're on page 3. It pulls us forward without making demands that are utterly impossible to fulfil. As an aside, often people read the Bible with 21st century eyes expecting the characters in the Bible to have the same eyes and therefore the same ideals. And the danger is not just that we impose ideals on ourselves that are unfair, but that we may do the same for others. So it's just something to be careful of. Anyway, with all of this in mind, how does this apply to marriage? Well. Let's talk very briefly about the so-called honeymoon phase. Psychologically, it is so easy to get unbelievably caught up in the sheer perfection of the other, when their flaws are, are easy to overlook because they're just so perfect. And in the face of that perfection, it's also easy to find yourself belittled because the ideal is a judge um and i think this this happens to people very often they find themselves at the mercy of being in love often people describe being in love as a kind of a kind of madness really it's it's like being possessed in a way and of course this is wonderful but it's also deeply humiliating which which i suppose is why we talk about falling in love it's a fall the ideal is a particularly brutal judge here And some of working out a relationship, figuring out how it works, must therefore involve trying to reconcile the ideal and the real. It must involve trying to figure out who this person is with you and who you are as you are with this person that you're with. And it must involve not killing the ideal, but seeing in what way it is actually real. So that's all very abstract. But let's think about it this way. If the ideal is that, say, the man has to provide stability in a relationship, is that a fair ideal? Does it reasonably and fairly judge who you are in your current state of mind and being? My sense is that maybe stability is possibly not such a bad ideal in and of itself. If stability means, for instance, that you can be trusted to have your partners back no matter what, or that you will always be trying to be a better man, trying to do right by the person and people you love, even though you have struggles within yourself that you have to contend with, then I don't think it's a bad ideal at all. It's not such a bad ideal because it includes the inevitability of messing up, and it also includes the promise of wholeness beyond that messing up. If stability means that you will show up and do what it takes to work through things with your partner, even when you feel like and are a mess, then I think that that form of stability sounds pretty good. But if stability means that you are expected to not struggle with PTSD or anxiety or depression, that you're always supposed to be strong and stoic in the face of your own suffering then the ideal is not an ideal but is in fact more like an outright lie. No one, no human being could live up to that ideal because we are all imperfect. So again I think beware of which ideals you pick and how you define them for yourself and also then obviously for your relationship. Often in the simple act of defining the ideal properly, I've demonstrated that a little bit here, you will arrive at a sense of whether or not it is in fact a good ideal. A marriage that will last, I think, is likely to be the one that allows for the mess of being human. And I think that if you have a partner who knows you through and through and is willing to walk with you through all the darkness that you need to walk through and be capable of holding space for you to be who you are and obviously to experience what you're experiencing, then that would be, quite frankly, one of the great wonders of the universe. I'd suggest, even though this is a bit of a sidetrack from the question, that if you wanted to do anything to ensure that you know how to move forward in your marriage, find a way to talk about difficult things, to explore the stuff that you don't normally want to talk about with anyone else. If you can talk about money, for instance, that's a really good start. Um, Contentious stances on difficult issues, anything like that, also good. It's important to be able to love each other without necessarily having to agree on everything. And it's important to be able to love each other even when you disagree. So I'd really recommend learning how to face the most difficult stuff in a way that honors the other person and honors who you are as you figure out a way forward. You'll know the the very common advice that marriage is communication, and I think that's really true. So uh, I would recommend that you maybe consult Marshall Rosenberg's uh, book, Nonviolent Communication. Uh, he's got a wonderful audio book on the same the same topic uh, that is really worth listening to. Excellent advice on how to communicate well, how to listen well. I think uh, really essential uh, for for anyone, but certainly particularly helpful in a marriage. Uh, but short of me giving an entire seminar on marriage, uh, let me briefly stress something else because it plays into the idea that the broken need grace. And the idea is this, marriage doesn't just take two. This is one of the massive insights we gain from the world of the Bible. Everything is highly relational in the biggest sense of that term. And the idea that the, the marriage's success rests only on the man's ability to be stable say is actually potentially very troubling marriage depends on at least four things you and your relationship with the divine second you and your relationship with yourself then who you are with that is the person you marry and then lastly it depends on the wider support system that you and your partner or future partner have there is No clear order of priority here though, it all counts. It's all interwoven into the fabric of our being and our being in relation with others and the world. And this, to put it mildly, is a profoundly complex and actually very fragile ecosystem of relationships that need to be taken into account and lived with. Another way of saying this is that marriage depends on what we bring to the marriage, ourselves and our grappling with the transcendent, how we and our partners relate to and do life, and also how we find support in the world. There's so much to navigate in all of this, and the thing I would say on all of this is is this, find people who can stand with you and walk with you as you and your partner do life together. In the modern West, there is this idea that relationships and marriages are between two people, but this is absolutely bogus. I see it everywhere how this actually wrecks relationships because uh, people rely entirely on this one other person. I think it kind of fosters an inevitable codependency that is uh, potentially very unhealthy. So yes, a marriage is the most intimate of relationships, but for it to survive, it takes a whole network. Uh, So find support and Really, this is all to say that the door that opens to marriage is not shut to the broken man, but this is also to say that walking through the door doesn't have any guarantees. There is fragility in all of this, and there is certainly risk. We know that things don't always work out the way that we hope they will. It helps to keep your eyes open as you go in, remembering always that love is not blind. It never is blind. Love sees very well. It sees everything that needs to be seen. And, of course, love is all-embracing. So be all-embracing as your Heavenly Father is all-embracing. I know that that, again, is me saying both too much and too little. uh, But uh, let's get to Kyle's second question, which is this. I am an artist. I find meaning in meaning itself and the visual world as a curtain behind which is this enormously profound world of truth and eternity. What role does suffering play in the church as Christ's bride? Well, clearly, um, I am someone who is also rather taken with meaning itself and the question of finding and seeking and making meaning. And Kyle uses that beautiful image from John 3 verse 29 and Revelation 21 verse 2 and which is alluded to elsewhere in the scriptures, this idea that the church is this imperfect and unholy collective of seekers and finders that is always already united with Christ and yet always expectant of Christ. There is this here and now, this kind of painful present, and then there is the hope of the future. There is our union with the divine, and then there is also a kind of expectation of consummation. I'm, I'm not going to be able to unpack all of the theology of this, but I do want to highlight this paradox in in this idea of the church being the bride of Christ, because I think it's in the paradox that we can begin to understand some of how uh, some of the role of suffering in all of this. We are changed as individuals and as collectives by two things: great love and great suffering not just one or the other, but somehow both. The odd thing is that we are uncomfortable with both of these things, generally speaking. People usually want to be loved conditionally, which is rather surprising, but think about it. Uh, But the lesson of great love is that it must cover every deficit and be present in every form of darkness and brokenness. And people definitely don't want to be transformed in suffering, we'd rather, again generally speaking, fight against suffering or ask why it happens. Um, That's fine, it's very tempting to do this, to ask why. I know from some experience too, that why is often a distraction from the issue of what is happening through suffering. If we allow it, suffering somehow can open us up to meanings and mysteries that have not been apparent to us before. And it's in this that suffering and creativity are profoundly connected. There's that famous Kierkegaardian idea that the poet, and yes, obviously the artist, is one who suffers most, but whose lips are so formed that when he screams, what comes out is more like a song than an actual scream. Some of you may have also picked up this seemingly strange connection between marriage and suffering. Um, And before we go wrong, the core here is not that marriage should be the cause of suffering. And I know for for many people it, it is obviously apparently the cause of suffering but the the idea is better expressed as the suffering should be mitigated in this particular relationship both in very earthly and very heavenly ways suffering is connected with allowing uh, with letting things go and letting things be but what role does suffering play in the church as christ's bride The answer is really that it plays many roles. It reminds us of our vulnerability and our utter dependency on that which is ultimate. It opens us up to others often in very uncomfortable ways but still in ways that can be redemptive and suffering also somehow brings us into new dimensions of beauty and meaning. Most of all it is the wounded bride that knows she should return to the healer and in fact, there are many things to learn from sort of witnessing the the realm of identity politics, but one thing that I, I seem to be picking up on is that there is a need for all of us, and I really mean both men and women, to reclaim the ideal of the feminine. The church, including all of us, is feminine, not the tyrannical feminine of the matriarchy at war with the tyrannical patriarchy, but the patient bride always waiting for her lover, waiting to be united with him and of course that there is both love and suffering in that and that i guess is the essence of it even if a lot of detail is missing there are some books i've found very helpful in grappling with all of this on the question of marriage rob and kristen bell's zim-zum Zum of love is a really great and worthwhile read uh t- taking from the kabbalistic idea of tzimtzum it's a very mystical idea uh which uh, they then explore around the n- the notion of and the, the reality of marriage it's a very quick and easy read uh but some there are some very interesting insights and i think uh i think it's good for couples to actually read together then on suffering uh specifically this is actually the more the question of why theodicy Uh, There is David Bentley Hart's brilliant little book, The Doors of the Sea, Uh, and Rob Bell's book, Drops Like Stars, is really wonderful in its exploration of the relationship between creativity and suffering. I would recommend also the wonderful book, Anamkara, by John O'Donohue, and he's got an equally beautiful book called Eternal Echoes. O'Donohue understands the tensions of life better than most, the paradoxes of life, and he manages to breathe life into philosophy and spirituality in a way that I find quite appealing he of course also deals with some of the the, the more difficult dimensions of our human experience and I would also recommend Richard Raw's book everything belongs which is the first uh, book I read that really goes into this strange way that love and suffering work together to to transform us But in all of this, as I end off, maybe it's good that I just remind you of something very simple, uh, but very important. Life is tough often, and we don't always know exactly what to do with that. So if you happen to be in a fragile state, struggling a bit more than others seem to be, be excessively kind to yourself. Maybe the time for picking yourself up by your own bootstraps will come at some point, but maybe now, You just need to be kind to yourself. Pick ideals that show you the grace that you need without letting go of the possibility that everything will, in good time, be okay. Take care everyone.